0: Good morning. As the kids make their way downstairs, uh, I invite you to make your way to 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> and We will continue our discussion of the recipe uh, for making disciples. And so we started this a number of weeks back, and uh, we started with this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This passage of Scripture is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus' commissioning of his disciples from the mountaintop to go back to Jerusalem, await the coming of the Spirit, and then they were to go and make disciples. <clears throat> you might recall, as we noted a few weeks ago, that not only was this task given to the disciples there, but it was given to the, the church as a whole. The task, make disciples. Again, it's worth reminding our, ourselves that we noted what is a disciple. A disciple is someone that, that adheres to Someone or their teaching. Okay, So a disciple was somebody who adhered to something that was taught by a person of authority or a teacher. In the case of making biblical disciples, the mission is to go proclaiming the truth of God's word in order that people would hear and have the opportunity to believe in what Jesus taught and then to identify with him through the waters of baptism. So for the disciples, the task was to go proclaim the truth of God's word, extend the word in such a way that people had an opportunity to hear it, to believe it, to then identify with it through the waters of baptism. And so that's what we see unpacked there in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And again, a few weeks back, we started the conversation of Discipleship 101, the recipe for making disciples. Disciples. And so before we dive into ingredient number two this morning, I want to remind us of ingredient number one, because there's been a few weeks between when we started this. But quickly, a review of ingredient number one. To make disciples, we must first be disciples. We cannot make somebody something that we ourselves are not, okay? And when I say make somebody, ultimately, we can't make anybody a disciple, Okay, But we can't fulfill the task of making disciples if we're not a disciple. So we said, and and, and as Paul wrote there to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, when he says, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he's acknowledging this reality that to experience the grace of God, to be strengthened by the grace of God, you must be in relationship with the God of that grace. And so then we jumped over to John chapter 3 where Jesus interacts with a, a religious leader by night. And he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's ingredient number one for, uh, in the recipe for disciples and making disciples is there must be born again believers who are s- setting out or seeking to make these disciples. And so we have born-again believers, and then we add to that ingredient number two. We're going to look at one sentence over the next two weeks that we're going to break in half. And we're going to look at half today and then half next week as we continue to look at this recipe. Now, one of the things that I do want to remind you of that we had shared a few weeks ago when we started this is when we talk about the recipe for making disciples, and as we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is not administering a step one, step two, step three process. He's writing to Timothy, and he's teaching him, or he's reminding him of what he's already taught him, the principles that we would find in the Word of God, whereby we understand this is what it means to make a disciple. So it's not a check, 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 but it's a you got to have some of these things in order, and you have to be growing in these things and working these things out. So we have to see... That as Paul writes to Timothy, and as he teaches Timothy or reminds Timothy of these principles, we have to employ them if we're going to make disciples. So again, number one, we have to be born again. And not just for the the process of making disciples, but I want to make sure you understand something this morning. Jesus very clearly told Nicodemus when Nicodemus asked him in John chapter 3, about seeing the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's very exclusive in the sense that there's only one way. But it's inclusive in that Jesus himself said, whosoever will shall come. So there's only one means to becoming a disciple and then a foundation for making disciples. You must be born again. So you might recall a few weeks back, as we began this conversation, we used the example of a recipe, cooking in the kitchen, and there being no guarantee of how um, things would turn out in the kitchen, you know, when you use a recipe, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, but I want to I paint a picture for us this morning. Um, actually, I'm getting ready to get in trouble, because my wife told me last week to stop using her from the pulpit, um, and so here we are today, getting ready to use my wife as an illustration from the pulpit. Um, Look, my wife made these uh, cupcake brownies yesterday. I'm gonna brag on her for a second, so I hope that will earn me some brownie points. But um, we we were having dinner with some some other families, and we were all getting together. And so my wife was gonna bring dessert. And she made these brownies, and I think she had a recipe. If not, I hope she wrote down what she did to create this recipe because I don't I don't overly love like a lot of like fudgy and chocolate. But she made these co- peanut butter cookies with peanut butter cups and brownie batter on top. They were incredible. Are there still two at the house? Okay, good. They were incredible. They were so good. Um, And so she had this recipe, but it was interesting that she came to me yesterday after Girls' Basketball Game, she said, hey, we got to stop at the store because i got to make this dessert. And so she comes out with these boxes of brownie mix. And it was interesting to me because the illustration that I want, the picture that I want to paint for this morning is that of baking a cake. And you, if you want to bake a, a Betty Crocker cake, then you pick up that cake box, you pay for it, you take it home, and on the back of it, you see that there's only a few things that you need to make this cake, okay? And, uh, and I double-checked this particular Betty, Cro- Betty Crocker cake, so I'm assuming they're all this way or similar to this, but to make a Betty Crocker red velvet cake, I don't care for red velvet, it was just what came up when I Googled Betty Crocker cake recipe. You need water, you need vegetable oil. You need eggs, and you need cake mix. Very simple, right? Just what is that? One, two, three, four ingredients. Four ingredients to make a cake. And so let's say I tell you, hey, I'm going to bake you a cake, and I'm going to bring it to your house. And so after my time of preparation and working in the kitchen, establishing my masterpiece, I come to your home with my completed cake that I want to share with you because I value your friendship so much. But to your surprise, when you take that cake pan, you can kind of feel some stuff moving around inside of it. And in your mind, you say cakes usually don't move inside the pan. But you take the top off of it, and what you have is not a cake, but some ingredients of a cake. And you've got some egg yolks floating around in there. They're probably broken by now, and vegetable oil and some water. And you can see all these things are very clearly separated. They're not blended together. You would look in that bowl, and nobody in their right mind would eat that mess. you said say, this is not a cake. This is some of the ingredients necessary to to make a cake, but this is not a cake. And perhaps if you've done much baking, when you look into that bowl, you would establish right away what's missing. What's missing is the key ingredient to making the cake, the cake mix. So you can put all the ingredients in the bowl minus the cake mix, stir them together, mix them up, do whatever you want, and you don't have cake without the cake mix. Why? Because I would submit to you this morning I'm not a baking expert. There are some here who could call my bluff on this, but I would submit to you this morning that the cake mix is the most important part of the cake-making process. Now, you could say, well, no, you could use flour, you could do it. You're right, you would make up a cake mix. You gotta have the cake mix to make a cake. And trying to make disciples without keeping the most thing important or that of which is of most importance That which is of most importance is like trying to make a cake without the most important ingredient, the cake mix. And so if we're going to set out on this quest to make disciples, then it's vital that we have all of the ingredients and that we have especially at our disposal the most important ingredient. You see, as the church seeks to follow the recipe for making disciples my mentor used to say to me, many of you have heard me talk about my mentor, a little old man who's 90 now, his name is Norman Carey, and one of the things that he used to tell me when he would, was pouring over the word of God with me in his basement for hours at a time was he would say, we must keep the main thing the main thing. That which is of most importance is the main thing, and we must keep that which is of most importance as that which is most important. Okay? Cake mix is vital to making a cake. You cannot make a cake without cake mix. And you cannot make disciples as Jesus Christ commanded the church to do without the most important ingredient. And so let's look at God's word to see that main ingredient together. Again, I'm in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Are you guys' TVs working? Because mine's out back there. Can you guys see up there? Okay. Um, Paul writing to Timothy says this in 2 Timothy 2. You then, my child, be strengthened. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, that's what we looked at a few weeks ago. Verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, you may have just heard me read that. You may follow along with your Bible and say, what's there? What ingredient is pastor referencing that's the main thing that needs to stay the main thing? You see, Paul reminds Timothy of that which is of utmost importance. And he reminds him of this as he carries out the ministry of developing leaders in Ephesus and making disciples. And I would submit to you this morning, ingredient number two in the recipe for making disciples, that which is of most importance, is the preeminence of the gospel. The preeminence of the gospel. And what you have heard from me is what Paul tells Timothy. What you have heard from me, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We'll pick up the rest next week. You see, there's the reality today that we have to understand. I'm going to break some of this down just a minute. But just a foundational reality we have to understand as we begin this morning is there is much competition for what will hold preeminence. And much like I say in other arenas, I want you to understand this morning, there are only two options For that which is holding preeminence, the gospel or everything else, or anything else, really is probably a better way to put it. You either have the gospel as the preeminent entity of the body of Christ, or you have something else. And Paul says here, What you have heard from me. So he's referring Timothy to be mindful of the things that he has heard Paul teach. And if you go back to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so what's happening here is Paul is reminding Timothy of the priority of the primary thing that he had been taught. The priority of the uh, primary thing that he had been taught. Preeminence is simply this, that which is most important. So, for something to be ascribed preeminence, we are acknowledging that that's something that we're declaring as preeminent as the thing that is the absolute most important. All right? And so I trust as I explain that reality, you understand, or at least you're beginning to understand or know, what I believe is most important. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the church is going to make disciples, then the gospel of Jesus Christ must be that of most importance. But I want to encourage you, because if we're going to ascribe preeminence to something that is worthy of being ascribed preeminence we have to understand it we have to know it I'm just going to flat out tell you something real quick if you don't know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ it cannot be preeminent in your life this is like Jesus telling Nicodemus you cannot see the kingdom of God if you are not born again there's a, a prerequisite, if you will. If you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And if you are going to make the gospel of Jesus Christ preeminent in your life, you must know that gospel. We can't have an idea of it. We can't know a little bit about it. We must know the gospel if the gospel is to be preeminent in our lives. Preeminence is simply the idea of that which is most important. Make a note here, don't turn there, I'll just read it for you. But in first Corinthians fifteen, chapter, excuse me, first Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse three, Paul interestingly enough, says this for I delivered to you as of first importance. So Paul told the church in Corinth as he wrote a letter to them, Remember that what I told you, I told you because it was the most important thing that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, these two verses encompass what is readily referred to as the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that, in accordance with the scriptures, he died for our sins. And then in accordance with the scriptures, three days later, he was alive. I want you to understand this morning, the news of Christ's death is good because we were in debt to God for our sin. We were guilty. We were condemned before a just and holy righteous God. And the greatest Plight of that predicament of being guilty before God is that there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that you, me, or the next person can do to change that reality. You cannot satisfy God's demand of holiness. I don't know if you know that or not, okay, but you cannot. I cannot. We cannot satisfy God's demand of holiness, and therein comes Jesus. Last week, I said over and over and over from this pulpit, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. The only claim that anybody has to the righteousness of God is the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he was perfect. The Bible tells us he was like us, In every way, he was tempted like us, yet he was without sin. And so Jesus steps in, becomes sin, absorbs the wrath of God to atone, that is to say to make the payment of or to meet the holy demand that God has. Perfection is the standard and demand of God. And Jesus meets that. And what's interesting is Paul tells the church at court there that this was all according to Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us it was the good pleasure of the Father to crush the Son for our iniquities. That's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Father's plan before the foundation of the world. It was not a reaction to sin. It was not a, oh my goodness, I can't believe they sinned. What are we going to do? The plan of redemption, according to the Father, was set in place before the foundation of the world. And so Paul tells the church at Corinth, this is all according to Scripture. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, would come and He would live and He would, he would teach and He would model. And He would, he would be, the Bible tells us, He's the, the, the representation, the manifestation of the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he came and he lived as the father, or as the father would have him to live, I should say. He lived as a representation of the father, and it was God's plan for him to do that and then to be crucified. Again, that was not a surprise. It was not a reaction. Because following the crucifixion, he would raise him to life, demonstrating that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. That's the crux of the matter this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ hinges upon whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. And I'm just going to tell you right now this morning, if Jesus was who he said he was, then it is perfectly acceptable for him to demand obedience of your life to him. And if you think about it, you would think that's reasonable. God took on flesh, lived as a perfect sacrifice, was then sacrificed, and then came back to life as a demonstration of that sacrifice, hmm, that might be somebody that I'd like to adhere to. That might be somebody that I would like to follow what they say and what they teach and what they do because, you know, everybody doesn't get crucified and come back to life. So if there's one who did, we might want to listen. We might want to tune in to what it is that he's saying and what it is that he's teaching through his word and what it is that he's calling us to. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we were hopeless in our sin and Christ suffered as a sacrifice but defeated death three days later and by faith you and I and whosoever will, Jesus said, can have a right relationship with the Father. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the gospel, it can't be preeminent. And listen, I'm going to say too. When I say know the gospel, you've heard me say this. There's a difference between knowing and believing. The word of God is not concerned with what facts you know. There's a difference between knowing something and believing something. I know what the Bible says about Jesus. I know that the Bible says he was the perfect manifestation of the Father, that he lived a perfect life, that he was crucified, and that he came back to life. I know that the Bible says that. That is not the same thing as believing it. When you believe it, you literally hitch your wagon to it. That's the idea of disciple, being a disciple. You say, I believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus, about his life, about his death, about his burial, about his resurrection, about my need for forgiveness from a holy God because I'm sinful and I'm wretched and that what I deserve is is death. But God in his goodness gave Jesus. When you believe that, the only appropriate, the only response that comes with truly believing it is following him. You, none of us follow something we don't believe. And the gospel of Jesus Christ deserves preeminence because think about what it is. It's the means whereby we are made right with a holy God. And so we've seen Paul in his letter to, 1 Corinthians, or to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians, what the gospel is. But there's also the reality of what the gospel does is primary importance. Again, the Apostle Paul writing, he wrote to the church at Rome, and Pastor Aaron covered this when he read our um, call of worship this morning, but a very familiar verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God For the salvation of sinful man. And so what this means is that the message of Christ dying in accordance with the scriptures is for the purpose of redeeming sinful man. It's not only the means by which the demands of God are met, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's the means by which people are made alive. You understand that? The gospel is the power of God for salvation is the means whereby dead people are made alive. And I want you to understand something. This I, don't mean, I don't want to sound crass. Okay, I'm just trying to communicate what the word of God says. Apart from faith in Christ, you're dead. You're a walking zombie. That's what the word of God would say. Now, again, of course, you're living and you're breathing and you're carrying on about life. But in terms of being in a right relationship with God, you are spiritually dead. And the only thing that can change the disposition of something that is dead is that that something become alive. And the gospel is the only thing that can make dead things alive. Paul says, I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God for salvation. Salvation is the means of passing from death to life by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel deserves preeminence because it is literally the thing that God has given that makes dead people alive. This only happens through faith in the gospel. And so I trust that it's clear by now why I believe the gospel must be given preeminence in the church and in our lives this morning. I want to give you two applications of this two applications of the preeminence of the gospel. And the first one is the preeminence of the gospel in the church. So what I'm, what I'm communicating here is that the gospel has to be given preeminence in the church. So any and everything that the church does by its way of function, by its way of ministering is done with the gospel of Jesus Christ as the primary motivation and reason for why you do what you do. As the power of God for salvation, the gospel is preeminent, and it needs to be preeminent in our church. And and honestly, if you're willing this morning, if I, if I asked you to, you probably would, would would do this, and it would be fitting. But when you hear me say the gospel must be preeminent in the church, some of you may be inclined to say, well, duh. Like, duh, of course the gospel has to be preeminent in the church. But I would submit to you that it's not as obvious as it may seem on the surface. You see, the task, again, that the church has been given is to make disciples. Again, a disciple is someone who adheres to the teaching of another. But it is readily apparent today that churches are motivated by much more than making disciples who follow after Jesus and adhere to his teachings. You see, it is not quite so obvious, right? Because we have a lot of churches that are motivated by a lot of other things. Many churches, for example, they focus on numbers. This many people made a profession of faith. This many people were baptized. This many people came forward. This many people, this many people, this many people. Now, I'd like to ask the question, and I, I will include us in this. When was the last time a church was known for growing people to walk as Jesus walked? Not made a profession of faith, not was baptized, not... These people were not, but now are, walking with Jesus. What if our barometer of how well we were fulfilling the task that has been given to the church was more about people who walk with Jesus than it is people who walk an aisle. Because those are two different things. Anybody can walk down an aisle, and it doesn't necessarily mean deadly squat. You walk down an aisle does not mean that you are walking with Jesus. And, And nowhere in the Word of God does it say, encourage people to walk down an aisle. Nowhere in the Word of God does it say, measure your success by decisions. Not even by baptisms. Now, baptism's a great thing. I would submit it's the first step of obedience to some, for someone who trusts Christ to publicly identify with him. But the word of God says, make disciples. That is to say, the task, the barometer of how well the church is doing is whether or not more people are walking with Jesus than previously. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am thrilled to see y'all. Hear you guys singing this morning. I love it. It's great. But I am far less concerned with the number of people who are sitting here than I am the number of people who are walking with Jesus. Because the Word of God, in the power that it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, invites people into a relationship with God, then to identify with God through the waters of baptism, and then to follow Him. Not say this, say that, do this, do that, but to follow Jesus. It's far too common for the wrong things to take priority in the church. There's also all kinds of traditions that exist in our churches that are not based on biblical principles that have become the priority. Attending church does not make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm glad you're here, right? Okay, I'm not, I'm not telling you that it means you shouldn't come or that we don't want you to come. But simply attending church does not equate to being a disciple of Jesus. So I'm not saying church attendance doesn't matter, and I want to touch on this in just a moment, okay? But there's also other traditions that are based upon rituals and performing certain acts such as confession or, or baptism. Now, confessing sin and being baptized are biblical, but are we doing them as scripture would teach us to do them? Are we doing them in the manner in which Jesus taught? Or are we doing them as a means of attempting to become right with God? Because the gospel is the only thing that can make you right with God. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized. Doesn't matter if you've performed this ceremony, doesn't mean if you doesn't matter if you've been a part of this. I'll use myself as an example. When I was in eighth grade, I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. I became a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ just short of my 21st birthday. I'll do the math for you. There's about nine years in there. But when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as conveyed in the Word of God, I knew I didn't have it. I knew I didn't believe it, but yet I had been through all of the processes. I'd been through all of the traditions and the rituals. that I still remember sitting in my confirmation class and asking the pastor how I could know I was going to heaven. Now, I don't know how much time you spend talking to people about the things of God and the word of God. There is no bigger softball than somebody saying, how can I know I'm going to heaven? And I still could tell you where I was sitting what room we were in, how far away that man was when he looked me in my face and said, are you afraid of going to hell? I'm 12. Of course. He said, well, then you know you're going to heaven. I want you to understand that that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches that the only thing that makes a dead person alive, the only thing that takes a person from the the spirit of darkness into the spirit of life and to a place of enmity with God to a place of friendship with God is the gospel of Jesus Christ and an individual's faith in it. Nothing else. I shudder to think about the number of people that believe that they're right with God because they've been told things such as, are you afraid of going to hell? Listen, if you believe hell is real, chances are pretty good you don't want to go there. So if our barometer is our level of fear or dissatisfaction with the thought of hell, we're missing the point. And we're leading people astray. We're not making disciples as the Word of God calls the church to do. So the gospel... The gospel must be preeminent in the church. Not tradition, not preference, not false teaching. The gospel must be preeminent in the church. And then there's also the gospel in our personal lives. Right? Like, we we don't get to compartmentalize this and say, well, it's priority at church. It's priority for the church, and it's priority for me when I'm at church. No, no. The gospel must be preeminent in our personal lives. And I would submit to you this morning that if the gospel was preeminent more regularly in the lives of people, then the gospel would be preeminent more regularly in the church. Because a church that strays from what the Word of God teaches... Does not have the ability to consistently and routinely stray further and further away if people themselves have made the gospel preeminent in their lives. We can say, wait a minute, Pastor. And I'm not talking about somebody teaching a Sunday school class or me in a pulpit saying something incorrectly. I just actually just did that a minute ago when I was talking about Jesus being the manifestation of the Father. I'm talking about a consistent, regular, habitual. Uh, veering off into things that are not biblical. If the people sitting in the pews have the gospel preeminent in their lives, it is really hard for that to happen. Okay? I'm not saying it can't. I'm saying it's difficult. A scripture exhorts followers of Christ to be holy because God is holy. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's what we as individuals, the gospel in our lives, are called to, to be holy because Christ is holy. Now, when we think of holy, we probably most likely think of some kind of supernatural aura that a person has. Oh, they're holy. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us that to be holy is to be set apart. So we talk about holiness as Christ is holy. It's to be set apart. It's to be different for the purposes of Christ. So it's specific. It's intentional. To be holy in terms of Christ being holy is to walk as Christ walked. To adhere to the things that Christ taught and to rightly represent him to the world as the image bearer of God that you are, as we talked about last week. You see, holiness is a pursuit. Holiness is not a status or a standard. Yes, you are declared holy in the sense that your position before God is secure when you trust Christ for salvation. But that doesn't mean, like, you don't get a tag. There's no sign on anybody's back that says, holy. The walking manifestation of holiness, follow me and you'll be holy too. It doesn't work that way. Holiness is a pursuit for the follower of Jesus Christ. And God has given many things to followers of Christ to aid them in this pursuit. So we got to understand gospel being preeminent in our own lives. This is a pursuit of holiness. And as is always the case with God, it's not like he says, hey, pursue holiness and figure out how to do it by yourself. Be the standard of the barometer for what equates as holiness. No, God graciously gives gifts to his bride, the church, so that we can know what it is and know how it is that we pursue holiness. The church, for example, we talked about this just a minute ago. The church is not a building. The church is not a physical place where some people meet for an hour, hour and a half, a couple hours and have reached a status or they've accomplished this or put a check in a box. The Bible would teach us that the church is a body of people who share a like-minded faith in the resurrected Jesus where time together results in the strengthening of one another in the pursuit of holiness. That sure sounds different than just a physical location where we meet together, right? And yes, there is, there's a reality that this is the church. If somebody says to you, hey, where's Dale Bible Church? You don't say, well, it's scattered out around Spencer and Du Bois County of all of the people who attend the church. I Actually, I think maybe Perry County too, but uh, Crawford, I don't know, somewhere over there. And uh, I get them all mixed up. But you don't say, well, the Dale Bible Church is all over southern Indiana, <clears throat> No, you say Dale Bible Church is located at 300 East Vine Street, Dale, Indiana, 47523. So there is a physical manifestation <coughs> excuse me, of this reality of church. But I'm going to tell you right now, far too many people's understanding and belief of church ends there. Oh, it's this building that we go and we meet at. We go to this building and we do certain things and we act a certain way. We put on a certain face when we go there, and then we leave and we go back to everything just like it's always been. That is not a life that has the gospel preeminent. The church is the body of people. I'd ask you is the church, the body of Christ, a priority in your life? Is it a priority? And I can't can't answer that for you better than you can. Is the body of Christ individuals from all walks of life coming together because of a like-minded idea or belief about Jesus so that we can grow together, so that we can pursue holiness, so that we can be a manifestation to the world around us? Is that a priority for you? And I'm going to tell you, if it's not, the gospel is probably not preeminent in your life. In fact, let me back up. If the church isn't a priority to you, the gospel is not preeminent in your life. Because you can't separate them. The church is a gift of God, whereby people come together together. Ephesians 4 would tell us we come together for strengthening one another, for building up one another, to use the gifts that God has given us for the development of people and for the glory of God. What about God's word? God has given us his word as an aid to the, the one who's trying to follow Jesus to better know how to do that. God has given us his word so that we might know him. Like, I can't stress this enough. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply adhering to facts. It's adhering to and identifying with the God of the universe. And the primary means whereby we know who that God is, the primary means whereby we know what that God is like, what he expects of mankind that's made in his image, what he expects of those who profess to be followers of Jesus is found in here. And you can't get anywhere else. The only way we know who God is and what God is like is from his word. And so I would ask you, Is the word of God a priority in your life? If the word of God's not a priority in your life, the gospel's probably not preeminent in your life. Well, let me do what I just had to do a minute ago. Let me take a step back. If the word of God is not a priority in your life, the gospel's not preeminent. What about the gospel itself? God has given us the gospel so that we could know what it means to go from death to life. Is seeing dead people raised to life by faith in the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ more important than anything else? At the end of the day, if all you're left with is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ according to the grace and mercy of God for the forgiveness of the sins of those who hear, is that enough? If you need more, or you need something else, the gospel is not preeminent in your life. The gospel must be preeminent. And I want to stop here for just a second before I close, and I want to say a couple things. I believe I just posed some very specific questions. And the hope of those questions being asked would be that those who hear those questions would give honest consideration to them. And so I want you to know, if you're sitting here this morning, you say, man. I, I don't think the church is preeminent in my life. I don't think God's word is preeminent in my life. I, I or a priority in my life. And I, you know what, Pastor, I don't I don't know that the gospel is preeminent in my life. I want you to understand something. All hope ain't lost. We just talked about that the message of that gospel is the grace and mercy of God in Jesus. So if the gospel's not preeminent in your life, if the things of God are not a priority a priority to you, here is my appeal. Make them. If you say that you follow in Jesus, if you say that you're a believer, if that's the case, you know, you might have changed some habits. And I don't mean like do this or don't do this. I mean like you might have to do some things that make it more readily possible to be able to come to church. You may need to figure out how to establish a routine of reading your Bible regularly. As long as there is breath in your lung, you are not beyond the grace of God. I don't care what the circumstances are. To be here today and say, you know what, the gospel has not been preeminent in my life is not the end of the world. But if something were to happen to you before the gospel become preeminent in your life. It wouldn't really be the end of the world. But it wouldn't be good for you. And I don't say that because I'm trying to scare anybody. I don't want anybody to be 12 year old me afraid of going to hell. Okay, I'm good because I don't want to go to hell. Week after week after week. I have the privilege of standing before you and trying to help you see who God is. And understand what God is like. And understand the heart that he has for you. A heart that makes it possible for sinful man to be redeemed. A heart that makes it possible for those who have gone astray, again as the prophet Isaiah would tell us, to be brought back to the shepherd. The heart of God that says, by faith in Jesus, dead things are made alive. To everlasting and eternal life. Nicodemus said, Jesus, how do I, inherit? actually, he said, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. So I implore you twofold this morning. Number one, be born again. If you're not born again, I would love to talk to you today. And you might even think, what are you talking about? <laughs> Let's talk. I love it. That's a great question to ask. You are somebody talk about being born again? If you have the question, what does that mean, please ask me. I would love to try to help you understand from God's word what it means to be born again. My second imploring of you is to just be honest. Be honest about your life. Be honest about what is a priority to you. Before you can tackle whether or not the gospel is preeminent, just examine your priorities. What what do you sacrifice for? What's the number one thing that gets put on your calendar and your schedule as you're planning out this, that, or the other thing? What's a priority? Just be honest. Because if we can be honest about what the priorities are in our lives... We are on our way to establishing that of which is most importance being most important. And Paul told Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that which is of first importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our task is to make disciples, teaching all that Jesus taught and baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are certain things that must be in place in order to make disciples. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is chief among those things. You can't make a cake without cake mix. And you can't make disciples without the gospel. The gospel must be preeminent in the church and especially in our personal lives. It was preeminent for the Apostle Paul and it must be preeminent for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for the gospel. I think of a while back, a little earlier, we were singing. Thank you, Jesus. Where would I be if it wasn't for the cross? God, at the foundation of the message of the gospel is the most heinous crime ever committed that the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God was suspended high above the earth for all the onlookers to see being put on display as having crossed the Roman government. But God, if it be not for that cross, where would we be? If it be not God for the resurrection of Jesus, Paul tells us that we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, Father, this morning, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, God, there is nothing in me or anyone here that you look upon and say, that deserves my favor or my kindness. And because that was our plight, your son was sacrificed. Our sins were atoned for. And so God, I pray today that the gospel would be preeminent in our lives. It literally is a matter of life and death. And so God, I pray today just for honest hearts. As we've heard from your word today and We've been challenged with this reality of just being transparent, being honest. Is the gospel a priority in my life? We could start there. Not even is it preeminent. Is it a priority? Where's it at on the priority list? What things are taking priority? God, I'm thankful for your faithfulness and your promise to work in our lives and in our hearts and to reveal to us. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished as we interact with your word. Think of what Paul told the church at Rome. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. We cannot have faith apart from the word of God. And so God, give us a desire and an appetite for your word. Give us spirits of humility that would allow us to be transparent and say... Maybe I'm not what I thought I was. Maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe I don't know or believe what I thought I believed. And God, then we watch the power of the gospel be displayed. Thank you for the power of the gospel. That it changes hearts, that it changes lives, and that in it, God, we see your heart for us. Work in us and through us for our good and for your glory.